the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. God is the one who removes our guilt and all the penalties that are associated with it. That's who God is. It's what he does. And it applies to every kind of sin you or I can commit because he lists any kind here. He says he does it for iniquity, he does it for transgression, and he does it for sin. Sin is very serious. And its effect on us is why God doesn't want us to ignore it, but to come to him for forgiveness and his power to change us. See, the glorious truth is that our glorious, amazing God condescends to not-so-glorious me. Isn't that worthy of our worship, too? Isn't that worthy of us coming to a place and saying, God, if this is who you really are, then here I am. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Israel had sinned against God and broken their part of the covenant. The Israelites repented with tears and worship, thinking God would not be with them going to the land promised to their forefathers. But God is merciful. Moses pleads with God to reveal the entirety of his person, to see God in all his glory. God is going to reveal himself to Moses by showing Moses some of his glory and declaring his character. We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 34, verse 4. Verse 4. So he, Moses, hewed two tablets of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning. And he went up unto Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. I love that it mentions he got up early. No doubt he couldn't wait. He just had to get up there. I found rising early to spend time with the Lord. That isn't a struggle when I'm excited in my heart to meet with God. When it's more of a religious ritual, then it is harder. And you know what I found when that's kind of my mentality towards my devotions anyway? When I put it off until later, it becomes harder and harder to get excited about spending time with him. And it reveals the real problem with me is not my discipline in Bible reading, but it's my love for the Lord. And I need to kind of bring my heart back to him. Here we go, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, under the third and to the fourth generation. We find here in the beginning in verses 5 and 6 a summary statement. It doesn't mean, you know, it says here, and God descended and stood with him there. It doesn't mean they hung out and chatted for a bit. This is just a summary of the fact that God came down and he was there and he proclaimed his name. Verse 6 is where we get to the details. 
And so the Lord passed by before him. So again, we don't get any comment on God picking him up, putting him in the cleft of the rock, covering it up with his hand. We get none of that. We just hear it, see the Lord pass by before him and he proclaims. So now we see, we don't get any details until God actually speaks and then Moses gets every single word. And here we find that God proclaims his character to Moses. And it starts off with one word. We have it in English, ours is two words, the Lord, but it's one word in the Hebrew, Jehovah or Yahweh. We don't know for sure. This is the personal name of God and that which describes his character most accurately. We call him God or we call him the Almighty One or things like that, but his name is Jehovah. Now the word Jehovah comes from a root word that means existence or development. In fact, it's a form of the verb to be. In fact, God's name is actually a verb. It's a a verb that signifies both God's existence and the work of God, his development. Thus, it is a name that is an action. So probably the best way to translate his name, Jehovah, is the becoming one. The one who becomes to his people what his people need him to be. This is why in the scripture it refers to him as the one who was and is and is to come. That's who Jesus is. That's who our God is. He is the one who was and is and is to come. So his person, this is the first aspect of God's character. He's a person. He's not a force or an emanation. He's not the universe or a part of it. and, And as such, therefore, he is personable. He has a mind. He has a will. He loves. He speaks. He has emotions. He gets upset. His his heart can be touched. And yet, he's not some advanced human being. He is completely distinct from us. He's not a part of creation. He is distinct from creation. And he's also more than just any loving person. There are loving people that we have in our lives. But Jesus, here in particular, Jehovah God the Father, he's the one who can become for us whatever we need him to be. And because he's a person who longs to help, we can have a relationship with him something he longs for more than any of us do. Well, the second thing we learn, he says, not just the Lord, Jehovah, but he says, Jehovah God, the Lord God. The word here for God is the word El, the singular word for God. El means mighty one. And so now it speaks of his power and might as the only God. I am Jehovah, the one who is mighty. He is also not just a person, but he is almighty God. He is the one who flung the worlds into existence. He's the one that has all power and all ability and all knowledge. He's everywhere. He has, he has all capacity. Nothing is too difficult for him. So yes, he's a person and yes, he wants to know us, but he's also almighty God who has a claim on his creation. You know, I hear people say all the time, what is God's problem with us? Why can't he just live our lives and let us do what we want? Because you're not your own. <laughs> The Bible says that. He says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Now, if people don't like that, I don't know what to tell you. I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I feel like I'm happy about that because he's a loving God. He's a providing God. He's a caring God. He knows what's best for me far better than I know what's best for me. And I trust him. I don't need to take care of myself. I've seen what that's like and it doesn't go well. And anytime I try to take back partial ownership, I start messing things up. It's far better. You know, if they say God is my co-pilot, I don't want anywhere near the front seat. I just want him driving and him being in control, whatever. The closeness I want in the front seat is just to be next to him. Not to give any, what do they call it? Backseat instructions, sidecar instructions. None of that. And as the only God, he is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our obedience. This is the second aspect of God's character revealed to Moses. He is a person, but he is the mighty God. 
Next, he says, merciful. The word means compassionate, sympathetic. It means that he prefers to show undeserved favor rather than mete out deserved punishment. I think that's interesting because there are those who would teach that God rejoices in the death of the wicked. He rejoices in punishing evil. Listen, God is just and there is a sense of justice, a righteousness about him when justice is done. But the Bible is very clear that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked ever. God's desire and aim as preference is to show grace rather than mete out deserved punishment. He is merciful. The fact that he's merciful implies that any relationship between God and man must be based upon forgiveness. It cannot be based upon what I earn because that's not his character. He's, he's not a banker. He's not a, he's not a lawyer. He's not a, he doesn't measure it out and say, okay, uh, let's see how good you were and see if you, know, you could be my friend, if I can be your God and, and you can earn your way to be part of my, my family. No, God's not like that. In fact, none of that's mentioned here at all. He says, if we're going to operate in a relationship, it's going to be based on mercy which means any relationship with God between God and man is one based on forgiveness. God does indeed hate sin, but he sympathizes with our weakness toward it. You know, it's interesting. You read in our scripture reading in Psalm 103 where David reflects on what Moses experiences right here. He refers back to it and he adds his own thoughts in God's mercy. David saying, bless the Lord and all the good things that God does. But then he reflects on this moment with Moses and God. He says in verse seven, he made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. And then he quotes it. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And he kind of seems to sit on the forgiveness and mercy of God. For he says, he will not always chide or be angry. Neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Aren't you glad for that? For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know that if you're going east, you'll never be going west? He didn't say north and south, because if you go north and south, eventually you're you're going north and then you're going to be going south. But if you're going east, you're never going west. You're always going east. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God is merciful. I think we think God's the army boot in the sky sometimes, right? He's just kind of waiting to pounce when we mess up. Not at all. He is merciful. He's looking to forgive. He's looking to be compassionate. He's sympathetic to our struggles. Next, it mentions gracious. The word here, gracious, it means to show favor to the needy and repentant. It depicts the heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to one who has a need. If you ever seen someone who has a need and your heart just is moved by that and you want to help out, that's what grace is. Grace is not earned. It's not you look and go, well, I think they deserve that scholarship because they've worked hard and they got a good GPA and whatever. No, grace is where you just look and you go, my heart goes out to that person. I just want to supply that need. Doesn't care what their GPA is. Doesn't matter whether they've earned it or not. Boom, your heart's moved and you want to give, you want to help. When we talk about grace and mercy, those are the two differences. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. God doesn't want to give us what we deserve. But grace is when God gives you what you haven't earned. God longs to give us what we haven't earned. He longs to bless us. Not only does he not want to give us what we deserve, but he wants to bless us where we haven't earned it. Isn't that awesome? We're only four attributes in. God's character is just amazing. Next, he mentions long-suffering. I love this word because it literally reads long of nose. Doesn't mean God has a big nose. The word long of nose was a very picturesque word. I have a little bit of Jewish in me, one-eighth. But I don't need to have the other seven-eighths because the other seven-eighths are Puerto Rican and German, which means I've got plenty of emotion going on here. I understand long of nose because when I get all worked up, (laughs) my face gets all flushed, you know, my nose gets snorting and blowing, and I'm just, I'm ready to go. 
that's just how it is. In the Middle East, when you get mad, you're very demonstrative. That's just a characteristic trait of that culture. So the idea was, if you're long of nose, it means it takes you a long time to get worked up. And so it came to mean slow to anger. Now, anger means to have a strong feeling of displeasure over a person or a situation. Here, in this case, a strong feeling of displeasure over a person or a situation. Listen, it takes a long time to upset God. Do you know that? A long time. Conversely, this is why we know that even the smallest of sins is a way bigger deal than any of us can realize. Because the Bible says that God is angry at sin every day. And if God is patient, long-suffering, if it takes a long time to upset him, that's how horrible sin, even the smallest ones, it, one is. I had someone come to me once and say, I don't understand why God would judge people for just whatever. They just fall short. They sin. We all sin. Basically, what you're saying is, God, I understand how evil evil is more than you do. I understand evil better than you do, and you're just way overreacting. But to presume that we understand evil and wrongdoing better than God, that we would be more of an accurate judge on what the price should be for someone who does something evil, here this gives us a hint that how evil sin is, how horrible it is to God, that he would be upset about it or angry about it every day when his character is it takes a long time to upset him. Isn't it good news to know that God isn't in a rage every time we fall short? I'm so glad about that. But you know the enemy lies to us about God, doesn't he? He says that God is through with you because of your latest failure, that God is angry with you, he's fed up with you, and he can't even come to him. God says he's not like that at all. In fact, he says it takes a long time for me to get upset. So my question tonight is, who will you believe? The liar or the God who is gracious and merciful and says he's long-suffering? Next it says, he is abundant in goodness and truth. The word abundant means having an excess, to have more than enough of what's required. So what does God have more than enough of? Goodness and truth. Those are bad translations. The word goodness here is chesed, and it's the Hebrew equivalent of the New Testament word agape. It means his loyal love, his unconditional devotion. This is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament when it says that God is love. This is when he says that he is abundant in loyal love. God has more than enough love to give to every person. More than enough. Like God never runs out of love. Like his love never runs dry. He never exhausts it. He never comes to a place where he goes, I've loved you as much as I can and I just can't anymore because you've done too much. He always has more than enough love for whatever you need. He always has more than enough love for whatever you've done. It doesn't matter. He always has enough love for every single person that he has made. Think of some of the worst things a person has done to you and your feelings about that. God doesn't just love that person. He has an excess of love for that person. And that means he has it for you as well. God will never, ever, ever stop loving you. Never. I tell my kids every single night, I say, now you remember that Jesus loves you. He loves you so much and he'll never, ever stop. I want them to know that with all their heart that they'll never, ever think otherwise. Now, secondly, it says he has more than enough also of truth. Again, a bad translation. The word here, truth, means fidelity. Refers to his faithfulness, his reliability, that you can trust him. God has more than enough reliability for whatever situation you face. You can always turn to him for help. He'll never give up on you. He'll never be unfaithful to you, even when you're not faithful to him because it's who he is. It's his character. It's who he is. Next, verse 7, it says, keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Put these together because they really do run together. The word keeping mercy, the word mercy here is actually the same word as goodness. It's God's loyal love, his agape love, his unconditional love. God is preserving and maintaining his loyal love for thousands. 
God has enough love for every person he creates. You know, you might be looking at yourself going, I don't know about me. I feel insignificant. I feel like maybe I've gone too far and his love runs dry. No, he is maintaining and preserving his love for you regardless of your response to it. And this is proven, why I put these two together, this is proven, I think, by his forgiveness. For he says, I keep mercy. I preserve and maintain my loyal love for thousands. How does it prove? Because I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. The phrase here, forgiving, it means to lift up and carry away. And thus it means to remove the guilt and the penalty that's associated with it. God is the one who removes our guilt and all the penalties that are associated with it. That's who God is. It's what he does. And it applies to every kind of sin you or I can commit because he lists any kind here. He says he does it for iniquity, he does it for transgression, and he does it for sin. What's the difference? Iniquity, the word means wickedness. And it really is just the wickedness of our hearts. It doesn't refer to any specific action. In fact, when Israel was in, in a stage of what appeared to be revival under King Josiah, the prophet Jeremiah said, you come to me and you're doing all the rituals again. He says, but I know in your hearts is iniquity. Iniquity is just a wickedness. It's what in our heart, you know, the, the sense of it, maybe even we don't act upon it. Nobody sees it, but it's all in there. All the yucky stuff that's in there, the things we think about that aren't right, the things that we think about other people that aren't right and that nobody ever sees and nobody ever knows about. All of that, he says, he forgives. Next, he says transgression. The word transgression means to rise up in clear defiance of authority. You know exactly what you're doing is wrong and you don't care. (laughs) The science is no trespassing and you say, I'm going to go right walking in. God says, don't do this. And you say, watch me. And we do that as well at times. And yet he forgives all of that. You know, it's interesting. I hear people say, I can understand how God could forgive me when I was a a sinner, you know, but now I'm a, now I'm a saint. Now I'm a believer and I know better. And I, I know I shouldn't do this and I do it anyway. How could he forgive me for that? What says it right here? He doesn't just forgive the sins of the heart or iniquity. He forgives our transgression too. The times we rise up in defiance and we step over that line. Lastly, he says sin. It means to fall short of God's standard. You're aiming for the bullseye, but you miss it. I'm gonna go home and love my wife like Christ loved the church, but I watched the Bucks game. That kind of a thing. You were aiming for the right thing, but you fell short. You didn't do the right thing. He forgives that too. All of those things, if we come to him, confess our sin, turn from it, he forgives And then we get to the last attribute of God, which I believe is also part of his love. He says, and will by no means clear the guilty, lest we think that sin is no big deal because God will forgive all of it. The Lord reminds us of his righteousness and that his forgiveness has terms. God by no means just clear or pardon or leave unpunished the guilty. He doesn't just let it go, but rather he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. The word they're visiting means to count or number or quantify something. God numbers and counts the iniquity and he judges accordingly. And those judgments have ramifications beyond just that individual, but it reaches even beyond a generation to the third and fourth generation. How many of you have had maybe a, a father, a grandfather, or a mom or a grandmother that was an alcoholic? And you've seen the effects it has upon your family. It doesn't just stop with them. It doesn't just stop with their marriage. It doesn't just stop with their kids. It reaches out to you as well. This doesn't mean that God punishes future generations for my sin. It means the punishment that God brings will have repercussions that do have an effect on more than just the one that incurs it. In other words, sin is very serious. And its effect on us is why God doesn't want us to ignore it, but to come to him for forgiveness and his power to change us. When Moses hears that, it's everything he hoped for and more. God was who he thought, but even better. And so it says in verse eight, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. 
And he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray you, go amongst us. For it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. You know what he's asking? He says, God, restore everything to where it was before I came down the mountain and found the idol. That's what he's asking. Lord, restore everything as if it never happened. And the Lord does. Can you imagine that? The Bible says that that's exactly what God does when he forgives us. You know, Moses, he couldn't get on his face quick enough. He made haste and he bowed his head to the earth and then he just began to bow. That's what the worship means. He began to bow before the Lord. And as he's doing it, he says, oh, if now, which means please, if I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray you, go among us. I love what he says here. He says, not just with us, but right smack dab in the middle. You go right in the middle of us, God. You get as close as you can possibly get. You want to know why he says that? Because even though they're a stubborn people, even though he goes, Lord, we are stiff-necked people, he says, what I have seen about you now, I know that you won't destroy us. I know that if we humble ourselves when we do sin in our stiff-neckedness, that you'll forgive and you'll pardon and you'll restore because you've showed me what you're like. (laughs) I know who you are and that means I know we'll be okay. So he says, Lord, restore us fully. Forgive us completely and go on as if the calf incident never happened and it's exactly what God does. When we get into the chapter, rest of the chapter next week, we'll see it's exactly what God does. God just moves on as if it never happened. And so I'm gonna ask you this night before we close, do you believe the man who saw God in the greatest amount of glory possible for a human being to experience? Do you believe that that man would ask God to come as close as he could possibly get if that was an angry God like the enemy tells us he is? The God that doesn't want you, the God that's through with you, the God that's fed up with you, the God that's done with you? Do you think he would say that if that's the God he encountered? In light of what Moses experienced, we should never feel like we can't come to him. See, the glorious truth is that our glorious, amazing God condescends to not so glorious me. And isn't that worthy of our worship too? Isn't that worthy of us coming to a place and saying, God, if this is who you really are, then here I am. All the messed upness that I've got, the stiff-neckedness and stubbornness and all the failures I've got. Would you come and would you fill me with yourself? Would you take this clay pot and just fill it with your treasure and use it? Would you take me and fill me with your glory so other people can see it and that they might want you as well? Could you imagine if we all approached our Christian lives that way? The impact we might have around us. I mentioned it earlier, but this is exactly what the disciples experienced. Jesus is the glory of God revealed in the fullest way man can comprehend this side of heaven. In Hebrews chapter 1, 3, it says that he's the outshining of God's glory, the express image of his glory. And of course, you know the famous passage in John 14 where Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father, that'll be enough. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, have I been so long with you? I mean, you've looked at my character, Philip. You've seen me. Don't you know that seeing me is seeing the Father? The Jesus that we see in scripture, that's the same God you pray to every day. It's the same God who wants to be there for you, who died for you, who wants to work in your life, who wants to answer your prayers, even though you'll never deserve it, just simply because you're his kid and he loves you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. What a tremendous blessing it is to have this passage before us. Lord, for whatever reason, you could have chosen not to include it. You could have taken this experience and said, oh, it happened. And yet, here we have it. You declaring your character in all of its glory to us so that we can know what you're like, what you're really like. So we'll just trust you with everything so that we'll love you back because of all the love you've shown to us first. Lord, we give ourselves to you tonight and we don't want to hold anything back. 
we just want to fall more in love with you. We want you to come as near and as close as you possibly can, Lord, trusting in the grace and mercy and long-suffering, the abundance of love and faithfulness that you have towards us, the forgiveness that, that never fails, Lord, because you keep your love, you maintain and preserve your love for thousands. Lord, have your way in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who God is and who we think God is can be different sometimes. God declares himself to be merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Some people may go their whole life not realizing the fullness of who God says he is. This instance in Exodus chapter 34 is the first time God declares his character and nature. The first thing he mentions is mercy. And this is God's heart towards us. He longs to bless us and be with us, and in His mercy not give us the punishment we deserve. He is a good God. Did you know you can call us and ask for any physical assistance or spiritual need? We would love to pray for you. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.